So sitting on there, and especially because I was filming with a drone, although I'm trying not to look like I'm doing anything on the iceberg, but uh, the drone really gave me this kind of out-of-body experience of how precarious this was. Hello, I'm your host James, and welcome to All About Energy. Every episode, we get together with an expert from the Center for Energy Ethics at the University of St. Andrews and discuss some of the energy news before going into an interview with a special guest from the world of energy. It is my pleasure to welcome back my co-host for this episode, PhD student in social anthropology with her work on energy elites and how leaders within the energy industry shape our collective energy futures, Anna Rauter. Hi Anna, thanks for being back with us today. Thank you so much for having me back. No, of course, it's my pleasure. As usual, we're going to head into some news now, but for this episode, rather than doing a piece each, we've got quite a long guest interview coming up in the second half, so we're just going to do one energy piece, and I believe, Anna, you've got that for us? Yes, I do. Um, I have a very interesting piece. It's a news piece that I'm sharing from the Norwegian news outlet NRK. The article picks up on a recently published study in Nature on the contribution of fish trawling to climate change. I thought that in honor of today's guest, Adam Sabir, who is currently living in Norway, and due to my own research interest in the country, I would bring in some ocean and Norwegian perspectives. Before elaborating on the Norwegian case, I want to briefly summarize the study published in Nature by Sala et al. in March this year, for which we will provide a link in the energy ethics page for this podcast. Is that right, James? Yep, yep, absolutely. So if you head on over there, we'll throw that up also with the uh, link to the Norwegian article. So the study in nature focuses on the tasks of the oceans, which are hosting unique biodiversity, there being a valuable food source for people, and there are a major stock for carbon. The authors of the study identify a key problem connecting these tasks of the ocean, which is trawling. And trawling, James, you might know this, and our listeners might know this too, is this practice of using large fishing nets that are moved across the bottom of the sea to catch fish. It is known to be a particularly high yield method of catching fish. So it brings in a lot of fish at a very quick time. But people also understand it as quite problematic because the large nets that are used are being dragged down on the seabed along the floor of the sea, and they catch everything in their path, including things that are not intended to be caught, such as plants and corals and various species of fish and other marine life that wasn't directly targeted by the fishermen. Yeah, yeah, they, that's kind of my understanding of the process too. It's, it's not a targeted method of catching fish. It's just everything. And yeah, it doesn't really come as much of a surprise, I don't think, that mm. uh, it would be destructive. I, I think it's just the level of destruction that we're, we're not really we don't really understand yeah that, that's right james and added to this is also that it disturbs the seabed which actually is also a major carbon stock so in that study the authors show that the seabed is the largest pool of organic carbon on the planet and it is absolutely crucial for the long-term storage of carbon so if the seabed would be left undisturbed, the carbon stored in the sediments can actually stay there for millennia. But if that seabed is disturbed, 
precisely through practices such as trawling, but also um, through other activities, including, for example, deep sea mining, it can release CO2 and contribute to climate change, as well as make it harder for the oceans to absorb further carbon. Yeah, yeah, that seems like it would make sense. We we talk about how we release carbon when we dis, uh, disturb soil, right? Like that's a big thing in, in farming and forestry is that these disturbed areas release carbon when they should be a sink. So it kind of would it make sense that uh, disturbing the seabed would have a, a similar effect. Mm, yeah, definitely. And so for the article that I mentioned in the beginning, the Norwegian article, they used the study and show that if trawling, the activities and the effects of trawling is included in calculations, that would mean that Norway's CO2 emissions would increase by a whole 50%. And, you know, Norway is a country whose economy has a very large focus on the productive uses of ocean space. It is also a country that's already in the midst of a dilemma to balance their continuing CO2 emissions, particularly from industrial activities, whilst also pushing for sustainability measures. So Norway is amongst the largest producers of oil and gas in the world. And at the same time, they try to be a world leader in climate and sustainability efforts. And all of which you know, because that's where your field research was based, right? Yeah, exactly. Where I had the chance to have an insight into the kind of strategies that the energy industry tried to employ in order to reduce carbon. For example, carbon capture and storage, as well as electrifying oil and gas platforms. But there's also other industrial activity in Norway, including large-scale fish farming that causes environmental experts worry. Some refer to this as the Norwegian paradox, or the Norwegian anthropologist Thomas Hyland Eriksson calls it the double bind, which is this apparent contradiction between contributing to climate change and environmental problems on the one hand, whilst on the other hand, simultaneously trying to mitigate them. So the Enalco article, the Norwegian article, identifies that in the case of emissions via trawling, Norway has this huge potential to contribute greatly to sustainability efforts. About 28% of Norwegian ocean space makes up the world's 5% most important sea areas to protect with regard to the climate. So there is a huge potential here for Norway to contribute to climate mitigation efforts. The article did include initial reactions from ministries and the government, and it will be interesting to see how this study could affect policymakers, not only in Norway, but across the globe. So what I really like about this study in Nature, James, is that it shows how interconnected everything is. The authors argue for the importance of protecting ocean space. And this is not only for the sake of the climate, but also, as they show, because it can actually boost fishing yield as it protects and supports biodiversity. So our industrial activities are connected to what we eat and from where and how we source it. And the protection of the variety of the species can in turn secure higher food stocks. And what's more is that a more sustainable, in tune and conscious approach to the way we use the ocean can help mitigate climate change. The study also shows that not everything has to be put on hold in order to mitigate this specific climate risk, which I think is really interesting for industry and policymakers alike. 
because the authors of the study show that fishing can continue and perhaps even thrive more if specific areas in the ocean space are targeted to be highly protected. The authors argue that in order to reduce the risk of carbon disturbance due to trawling by 90%, it would be enough to protect only 3.6% of the ocean. What is also important to note is that the authors here emphasize the need for a global approach. So I'm really looking forward to seeing how countries like Norway and others will familiarize themselves with the results of this study, which I think has a very positive, proactive approach to fixing a part of climate change, of climate mitigation, and how policymakers and industry might integrate this into their future planning. It's really interesting. I think when you start to bring together these different strands that we often see as, as separate, the sustainability, climate change, and food practices in particular. Uh, and I'm actually going to get a, a little uh, backdoor second news article into this because this is actually picks up on the points of the news article that I wanted to, to bring in this week, where there was a new study from out of UC Davis which showed that uh, just adding a small amount of dried seaweed to, to cattle stocks actually reduced the amount of methane that the cattle uh, are responsible for producing by up to 80%. So you're saying that feeding cows seaweed makes them fartless. Yeah, basically. Basically, so cows are well known for, for producing methane. Livestock generally produce not quite 15% of uh, anthropogenic greenhouse gas emissions and cows are a significant chunk of that so you can reduce that by 80 percent by just adding a little bit of seaweed to their diets and, and i think that's another study that shows how not necessarily even huge changes can make a significant difference yeah and i think it also points towards the importance of understanding that again, everything is connected and that what we as humans and our industrial activities and our preferences for food, that they are part of a larger cycle that affects the planet that we live on. And to see the, to, to have a sensitivity for that, for these human effects, I think is really important. And again, just to advertise what we anthropologists do, I think that is the benefit of the Center for Energy Ethics, that we have these people working here, looking at the human interaction with nature and with industry and with politics and how, how all of that can link up and be part of how we shape the potential energy and climate futures. Precisely. Precisely. Couldn't have said it any better myself. <laughs> That's the end of our news section this week. And right now we're going to go into our interview with the inaugural Art of Energy Award winner, Adam Sabir, to get his take as an artist on the world of energy that he's experienced and that he helps others to experience through his work. It is my pleasure to introduce to you today the winner of the Art of Energy Award, Adam Sabir. Thank you so much for being on our podcast today, Adam. Oh, thank you for having me. Just to briefly introduce you, Adam studied filmmaking in Sydney, Australia and in Havana in Cuba. He then went on to direct documentaries for Australian television. In 2003, a film shoot about sea level rise on the small Pacific atoll of Tuvalu focused his work on the early effects of climate change. To this end, Adam has been undertaking a practice-based PhD at the University of New South Wales. 
However, he is presently marooned in the Arctic due to the Australian COVID-19 border closure. In his work, Adam confronts the question of how to show climate change, a process largely imperceptible to our senses, in which effects are displaced from their causes in both time and space. Adam uses multi-screen video art to rethink our aesthetic visual representation of and engagement with climate change. You can check out Adam's award-winning piece at the Art of Energy Gallery and also view his other fantastic pieces on his own websites, which we're going to link in the description. Adam, to start off with, you have done some incredible work in many places around the world. Your work manages to draw the viewer into harsh, extreme, and simultaneously aesthetic environments in what looks to be really extreme conditions. Could you tell us what motivated you to work on climate change? Ah, well, I happened to be talking to a friend of mine who is a musician who uh, had a very interesting sort of background, a uh, cultural background, and I had no idea exactly where she was from except that I knew it was the Pacific. And when I asked her which country, she said, oh, you've probably never heard of it, and look, it's going to disappear pretty soon anyway. <laughs> and with an answer like that, I thought, I have to know more about this. I was a documentary filmmaker at the time, and this idea that a whole country would disappear was extraordinary to me. That was 2003. And uh, I ended up getting funding from the Film Australia Commission to, um, to go to the Pacific and actually spend a few months on Tuvalu making a, well, making a pilot documentary for the Australian Broadcasting Corporation about what this island was experiencing. But um, yeah, I mean, the problem I had with broadcast, I have to say, is that back in the bad old days, this was early 2000s, ABC was insisting on a 50-50 kind of approach to documentaries about climate change, 50% that it was happening, 50% uh, counter arguments. And that was just absurd. That documentary didn't get made, despite having a lot of really good material. And it manoeuvred me eventually towards um, visual arts as, as a way of, of moving on. Um, with discussing climate change where I wasn't faced with, A, the problem of finding visible evidence because that wasn't really able to be done at that early stage so easily. And uh, also this problem of false journalistic balance because there is no 50-50 uh, with science, of course. Why do you still work on climate change? What is the message you still need people to hear in your work and through your work? I don't know that I'm so much about putting a message out there. Um, there's plenty of people who do do that extremely well. I'm sort of more interested in opening up changes in the way people think about it, I suppose, or giving them space to rethink it and find an emotional engagement with A, what's going on, but B, our approaches to it. I've always been attracted to, to places where processes are becoming visible in a way. Perhaps I should tell you where I am, and that is in the high Arctic of Norway. So I was halfway between Svalbard, which is about 1,200 kilometers from the North Pole, and Greenland on a, on a trip to do some PhD research when uh, the COVID crisis struck, and I got stuck in a lighthouse on an island called Utsira, not so far from you in Scotland, uh, for about three months. And then when it became clear that I wasn't going to get out of there in a hurry, I sort of migrated north back up to the Arctic. So now I'm sitting somewhere between the Lofoten Islands and uh, Tromsø, if you know it. For me, coming up to the Arctic was um, a case of, you know, the Arctic being the canary in the coal mine. It's work, uh, warming two to four times faster than the rest of the planet. 
Uh, ironically, now that I'm up here, of course, as soon as I got here, Australia went up in flames. So I probably could have stayed at home and uh, the Canary <laughs> sort of moved location to exactly where I'd been living. What's keeping me engaged up here is just seeing such enormous changes um, while I'm marooned. I mean, I haven't been able to get home for well, almost exactly a year now. In that time, I've seen an entire course of a year in uh, the Arctic, and it's just rammed home to me that these are massive changes that are coming through. For example, we had uh, in Norway the warmest year on record last year, uh, but January this year was the coldest in over a decade, you know, and all the soil froze, uh, all the hydroelectric plants stopped working. Suddenly they had to buy electricity from other countries, which was pretty unknown for Norway, and towns ran out of water. There's these beautiful lakes, which are normally covered in snow, which were just left completely bare. And it meant that I could see these methane bubbles coming up from underneath. And suddenly I thought, well, there's a beautiful representation of something that we normally have no ability to see. You know, climate change is caused by colourless, odourless gases. But here I was able to actually uh, to visualise it. And it was coming about as a result of, of something that had changed quite rapidly. So, Adam, i just wondering, I mean, we're, we're both from the South Pacific. And I, I just wonder how you get from working in the Pacific uh, amongst the small atoll nations to working up in the Arctic? Was it simply a matter of finding more places where climate change is more easily visible? It was not really an easy transition. And thankfully, I didn't go directly from Tuvalu to the Arctic. That would have been a bit of a shock to the system. You know, the, the Anthropocene, although it's... Uh, titled to sort of bring in the whole of humanity, actually it's not uh, the outcome of the actions of the whole of humanity and it's affecting people disproportionately. So going to these this tiny atoll or a, a tiny village in northern Greenland, both were really feeling the brunt, um, even though the scientific case, I guess, is still open as to what the effects are going to be. Um, they were certainly feeling changes. So I was able to empathise with that on a, to, to some degree. But also there was this interesting overlap between the Pacific and uh, the Arctic in the sense it's I feel the more I stay up here, it feels like kind of this modern day terra nullius idea is persisting up here. Um, this concept in Australia and the Pacific allowed colonial violence right up to sort of the nuclear tests in Maralinga in the uh, 1950s by the British. And up here, you've got the terra nullius is sort of uh, manifesting in the form of geoengineering, I think and other strange climate-related um, projects. So as well as the project in sub-Arctic Iceland, which there's also the remains of geoengineering experiments up in Svalbard, these very strange kind of carbon sequestration projects that were abandoned and now sit like these kind of ruins in the middle of this Arctic environment. Even up here, just near where I am, I read the other day that Scopex, this very controversial Harvard experiment, to inject uh, sulfates into the atmosphere uh, has actually moved just up to Lapland across the border in Sweden. And uh, they're hoping for permission to do some stratospheric injection tests in summer, although that's already struck a few hurdles. So it, it's a, there are a lot of parallels, I guess, between um, where I was working and where I am working now. So uh, what were the greatest challenges you faced moving from Australia and working in the Pacific to the Arctic. Obviously, the climate itself is significantly different, uh, not to mention the, the languages and the peoples. Uh, so what were the challenges you faced there? 
the only <laughs> the only real challenge I would say, aside from the technical challenges, I mean, a lot of these films were made with great pain. I have to say, I don't think any of these films I can look back on um, and completely smile about the making of them. They were really, really cold places to be filming as a single camera person, fiddling with buttons, with hands that were just about to fall off, or um, uh, various other concerns like being eaten by a polar bear, etc. So well, I don't want to make it sound too, too heroic or anything like that. There weren't so many concerns about it. It's more that I'm just stuck up here involuntarily, I guess, for the better part of a year now. And that's, uh, in a way, it's frustrating, but at the same time, it uh, really reinforces the kind of the luxury that I took for granted of being able to fly from Australia to Greenland and, and do a film shoot. I think we'll look back in the future on this as an absurd, absurd behaviour. And it really made me stop and take, it, take this into account and made me rethink the ideas of slow travel. And this is enforced slow travel, but it's still been a really good experience for me. You problematize flying in one of your films where you use a formula to calculate the amount of carbon emissions in flying from Australia to Greenland and then converting that into how much sea ice would be destroyed with those carbon emissions. And then you, in that video, you go ahead, you do the calculation. And um, you cut out that piece of ice and then the viewer sees you floating, drifting away on that piece of ice. I think that's a very strong image and a very reflexive image. So I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, look, I, I don't think this formula got the, the recognition it deserved. For me, it was an absolutely pivotal moment because, you know, climate event attribution, this is a very nascent kind of field, but it's also called climate change attribution research or probabilistic event attribution. And it's the ability to link a particular event to certain or to anthropogenic greenhouse gas emissions. Previously, you were only able to say, you know, this event was made so many times more likely by global warming. But then in 2016 in Science, Dirk Knotts and Julian Strove published this amazing formula. And so with a 10% margin of error, Knotts and Strove have worked out that if you put in, into the formula your carbon emissions, so in my case it was 5.23 tonnes of carbon dioxide equivalent, and then you um, multiply it by a constant based on... Um, uh, research into the energy flux at the ice edge and that constant is three square meters per metric ton of carbon dioxide emitted. So once I multiply 5.23 tons of carbon dioxide by this three square meters per metric ton, I could work out that I was going to be directly responsible for the death of 15.69 square meters of ice. It was really a, an amazing moment for me because there's been various visualizations, you know, of balloons containing what, how big a balloon containing a ton of carbon dioxide is, but it's still a very abstract thing. But here was I sitting on this piece of ice that I knew I, I, was, I was going to kill. I was responsible for the, the death, let's say it, of this ice and it would not regenerate in spring. So sitting on there, and especially because I was filming with a drone, although I'm trying not to look like I'm doing anything on the iceberg, but uh, the drone really gave me this kind of out-of-body experience of how precarious this was. 
you know, I could hear the water lapping. I could hear bits of this ice flow collapsing into the ocean. My chair was starting to create holes in the, um, the ice flow, and I had no idea how thick it was. Well, actually, maybe I can play you a little bit of the audio from, uh, from when I was sitting on there, so you just get a sense of being there. That would be fantastic. And the, well, he's a Greenlandic fisherman who had dropped me off, had gone off fishing. He's a narwhal hunter. So he'd gone off. He was a bit bemused about what I was doing. And he said he'd come back later. So I was sitting there in my survival suit, which gave me all of two minutes to live if I fell into the water, thinking about how precarious this all was. And it was probably a bloody stupid idea. But at the same time, if I got off, I was going to have to make some pretty big adjustments. And I often think about that piece. It's strange. I, I, I don't know. Have you heard of this thing? There's this, uh, it's kind of a provocation, I guess, called ecosexuality, where people are marrying mountains and so forth. I mean, a lot of problematic aspects to it, perhaps, as well, but it's more mostly performative. And it's about this idea of sort of falling in love with uh, aspects of the natural world. And I, I really have a funny sort of connection now with that piece of ice that sort of agreed to save my life or not to not to let me go and likewise in another film breakdown i really felt for one piece of ice and i realized later it was sort of the size of a human child i guess maybe that was the thing that made it seem so relevant to me but it, it was quite interesting the uh, relationship you form with ice when it's when it's that close to you i don't think i'd do it again to be perfectly honest i think that was a bit stupid but at the same time, it was something I felt I really had to do for myself. Uh, and, I mean, it was very nice that it came with quite a, I think, quite a, a affecting artwork. I hope it's affecting to other people. It affects me. But the scientist, who, scientists who saw it, uh, especially Dirk Knotts, he's a total advocate of it. And he um, has had it shown at the Max Planck Institute uh, for the Long Night in the Museums, etc. And he does talks about the sea ice and how they got to this formula uh, when we show it. So it's a really nice sort of uh, tie-in with his research. And he was just really happy to see somebody crazy enough to visualize it. In that project, which is called Adrift, and you can see it on the website, I didn't want to sort of individualize responsibility too much. You know, I didn't want to falsely ascribe it to some sort of innately human failing to overlook all the sort of systemic culpabilities that underlie global warming. But I just wanted to get a sense of my own, the disconnects that are operating in my own psychology, you know. It's very hard not to fall in love with ice. I felt this when I was making Anthropocene 1 Breakdown, uh, this this work that turns this procession of icebergs at Jokultsalon in Iceland into this enormous enormous uh, sort of oil fuel traffic jam with lots of tooting and crashing cars, a bit like the final scene out of, out of the Blues Brothers movie. It's a sort of a, an anti-homage to the internal combustion engine, but using time-lapse shots of these absolutely gorgeous icebergs just crashing into each other in their haste to escape and get out to the ocean where, of course, they're going to die. And uh, that was the piece that uh, I felt really quite... Um, strong emotions for some of these absolutely gorgeous pieces of ice that I, I knew were 
were destined to melt. <laughs> and the funny thing was, there was also this, it wasn't just me who felt this, there were a lot of tourists out there doing these kind of bizarre rituals that you would be interested in as an anthropologist, Anna, that they would take this tour and finish it by drinking the uh, some of the ice. So there was kind of an ice sommelier. And I, this is one of the shots that didn't make it into the film. But this guy, as I was filming, in a rubber dinghy comes up to this ice and chips away at it, it looks at it to make sure it hasn't got any uh, sediments or anything like that in it, and then zooms off again with it in his Zodiac to take it back to the this kind of cruise boat where it's broken into small pieces with a hammer and they put it in their glasses and then they they drink to, well, I don't know, is it disaster tourism? It was really a, a strange, a strange kind of uh, thing. Maybe I should play you a little bit of the sound from uh, Breakdown. This absolutely drove me mad when I was trying to construct this in the editing suite. I really don't like uh, the internal combustion engine. And here I was layering about 40 different uh, types of motor vehicles, all having crashes with bits of ice cracking, which was actually my, my favorite bit. I have to say, as a result of that, when I got home, I, I mean, I don't really believe in carbon offsetting, but uh, I, I did decide I would plant the trees myself. From now on rather than tick this little box um, on next to every flight booking offset your flights i thought i will go and plant the number of trees that i need to uh, ameliorate this damage well it doesn't really ameliorate it the plane still flies um just to give you an idea and when i did that and that, that was for this flight that i brought me here that was going to be 9.9 .9 tons of carbon dioxide because uh, the company that flew me was putting me in uh, premium economy so it's a bit more than economy and I had to plant, plant um, 149 eucalyptus viminalis, basically, to sequester that amount. So that was two, two full days of planting. Yeah, the, the thing, when you, when you finally go, okay, that's 149, but uh, then they have to be looked after for 100 more years. And I'm not going to be around 100 years. So there's a kind of a futility, but I, I don't know. It, it brought home a lot of things to me. It's it's really good that you've pointed out some of the scientific community's reaction to your works. I was wondering if at any point you've come across, and I mean, I mean I'm sure you have because of the, the topic, if you've been criticized for any of these works at any levels and how you've dealt with that. Yeah, well, look, there's been a couple of critiques that spring to mind. For instance, the one about Hitler Shavy. So the one that won the Center for Energy Ethics Prize, um, this has a very sort of sinister soundtrack. In fact, perhaps I should play you a little bit of it now. And this, this, this kind of rumble, uh, this pervasive rumble with the hissing of the steam and the, the throbbing of these kind of motors, this was, um, this was my experience of the place. I mean, they're taking carbon dioxide out of the air 
um, liquefying, uh, liquefying it and pumping it into an active volcano. It is not going to sound pretty. And uh, it's all powered by a geothermal plant, which is why it's up there, why this experiment is up there. They wanted to be carbon negative, And the best way to do that was to get this cheap energy. The critique that I had from somebody in the industry who watched it was that he was expecting zombies to appear at any moment. So I think he felt that it, I'd made it too melodramatic and too uh, Doctor Doctor Strange Love or too kind of evil. It it's a fair criticism, perhaps. I mean, art, video art, really uh, gets off on the rumble, the, the this base uh, effect that I think makes the the sense visceral. But I, it's what I felt while I was there. So that was one critique I had. Um, the other two critiques have basically come from my choice of the title for the whole series of Anthropocenes. And, you know, Anthropocene has been described as this kind of charismatic mega concept. And everybody, every discipline wants to have its piece of it. And, uh, of course, uh, humanities scholars in particular uh, object to the anthropo part in the sense that it really just apportions the blame or the attribution to everybody on an equal basis, even though it's very unequal um, in the way that it uh, was created. And I'm sort of interested in the, the hubristic a aspect, this idea of especially of the geoengineers, the climate engineers, that we can now hack the planet to fix these problems. Uh, this kind of hubris, <laughs> Greek myths, of course, find uh, uh, a lot of material in that kind of behavior. And I think it's also a rich territory for artists as well. So I think that's what draws me into that. Actually, I was just hoping to clarify for our listeners some of the terms that you've been using because you've mentioned geoengineering. Ge well, geoengineering, I guess you could take the, the standard definition from the Royal Society in London, I guess, is the deliberate large-scale manipulation of the planetary environment to counteract anthropogenic climate change. And it's... Um, it's kind of problematic, I guess, because it addresses the symptoms, not the causes. It's expensive. Um, some of the solutions proposed would lock us into doing it forevermore. And the side effects range from nicer weather for some to absolutely deadly for others, potentially deadly for others. And on, a, on sort of an ethical note, um, it's, it's a moral hazard. You know, it offers us a techno-capitalist quick fix so that we don't have to stop polluting. And while it sort of falls into kind of two separate categories. You've got carbon dioxide removal, which is what is happening at Hetyashethi with these uh, big direct air capture units. You've also got, on the other hand, solar radiation management, which is much more controversial. That's things like spraying sulfates into the atmosphere, which, as I say, is proposed um, just across the border here in Kirana in uh, about three months' time if they get the go-ahead. So um, I think Naomi Klein called it kind of a, a research wild west. And there's a lot of uh, people, I guess, who would like to have a designer planet. But on the whole, you won't sort of find these ideas promulgated widely. It's more, more companies like Climeworks, for example, who made this direct air capture unit. In fact, let me play you a little sound of this DAC, this amazing piece of technology that actually takes carbon out of the carbon dioxide from the air and uh, then sends it off to be sequestered inside this active volcano because it's, it's really a unique piece of technology and there's going to be tens of thousands of them all around the world.
And actually, the funny thing is, um, you can actually go and see this place quite easily. Most places around the world where they're doing this kind of experimentation, you'd expect it to be heavily patrolled and fences and dogs and things like this. But I thought, oh, well, look, I'll just go and have a look. I was doing an artist residency in Iceland and uh, I rocked up there and hey, there were no fences whatsoever. Iceland does not believe in fences, which is one of many wonderful things. And so I was able to go right up to where they're doing this sequestration in these bizarre otherworldly domes um, near the Hetlische, the uh, geothermal power plant, because it's in the middle of a walking track and Icelanders love their walking tracks and it had to be open to the public. So on the one hand, these, these bizarre domes that you see in the video have little signs on them, sort of PR signs, and they're, they're quite funny. They're trying to make it very non-confrontational, so they're talking about pouring fizzy soda down a well. But in fact, of course, they're injecting our pollutants into a volcano. But and next to this sign, talking about the fizzy drink down the well idea, is another one which is much more sort of technical from, I think, from the days when they're extracting um, steam out of there, saying that if somebody in your party is overcome by sulfur fumes, just leave them and get the hell out of there and call for help. Don't try to rescue them. So I kept my dis I always kept up upwind when I was filming that. And having the drone was quite helpful because I could send it off on kind of these reconnaissance missions. And then I started to really like the way the drone was approaching these landscapes. Because if you think about how, say, someone like Hieronymus Bosch makes his triptychs, and this is a triptych, remember, uh, he, he has this elevated vantage point, which gives you this view down onto the moral affairs of the world without taking the same perspective as somebody living in it. And also without taking a divine high perspective, it's somewhere in the middle, his uh, viewpoint. And I was able to sort of think about this with the drone. So the drone becomes this kind of uh, for me in my works, becomes this kind of AI, I guess, that's visiting this strange goings on in the power plant. And then you have the vertical screen, which is much set somewhere in an, in an unknown time zone, perhaps when the, her the earth is returning to a kind of homeostasis after we've stuffed up the atmosphere. You could read it like that, I guess. And then there is kind of a, another screen underneath, which is like a, a predella in a, a triptych. So it's like this horizontal lower section where I've got the core of this mineralized um, basalt plus calcite. And it was like this holy core that they gave me to hold. I was so surprised because they cost a million dollars to make. And I was just uh, totally uh, overwhelmed by this, this kind of holy object that I was uh, handling that uh, contained our pollution now mixed in and creating this new kind of rock. There were a number of things that really gripped me about being there. Uh, this carbon capture technology that you're describing in the difficult to pronounce Icelandic word, could you say it again? Hetlesheði. <laughs> yes, this one. Do you see that as an example of geoengineering? And if so, I can see that you're quite critical of, of what is happening there. Do you see any potential for this kind of technology as well in the future? Perhaps only critical when I'm talking to you now. I think I hope the work sort of stands on its own without forcing my view down anybody's uh, throat. 
that it, you know i just want people to to have it, to be thinking about what's going on there i don't want to say it's necessarily bad i mean the ipcc said that um carbon capture technology is going to be needed if we want to have any chance of staying below 1.5 degrees so i don't uh, sort of oppose it personally on a blanket level i think there are certainly i mean when i'm planting my trees hey that's that's carbon dioxide removal you know so that's one of the forms and what Climeworks is doing in conjunction with Carbfix at Hetlashethi is certainly on the more innocuous scale of of uh, geoengineering, but it is technically climate engineering. Funny story: if you type uh, Carbfix as a hashtag into Instagram, it brings up with lots of pictures of pasta carbonara. I discovered <laughs> when I when I tried hashtagging. And in Switzerland, I mean, they have a, quite a few of these devices mm-hmm. at their factory in Switzerland, and they're using it to grow tomatoes better, and they're uh, carbonating fizzy water there. In Switzerland, I've seen these greenhouses that are coupled with something that looks like a gigantic hoover, and it sucks up air, or I guess carbon dioxide, and then injects it into these greenhouses to make tomatoes grow fast. Yeah. It's very hard to object to these things. It's only when it starts getting injected into a volcano and you're sort of wondering, well, what happens when the volcano erupts? I mean, there's another volcano just on uh, eruption alert south of Reykjavik at the moment. Um, and I asked the, one of the scientists there this and he said, well, I think Reykjavik will have bigger problems to worry about if it does. <laughs> and I also asked him, you know, well, what about the sub um, subsurface biotic activity? You know, what if little microbes decide they want to eat uh, this sequestered carbon and release it as methane? He said, oh, I don't think there's likely to be any uh, microbial activity down at those temperatures, but oh, we haven't checked. So it's kind of interesting. It's it's. I don't want to say it's cavalier, but it is this thing um, that Naomi Klein sort of says it's got this kind of retro quality that's not not quite steampunk, but it definitely, although there was a lot of steam, but it definitely harkens back to more confident times when we were confident about our ability to to master the planet. And I, I think it's a different kettle of fish to climate change adaptation. So it has something retro about it, but it also has something very futuristic. And this is the feeling that I get when I watch your short film. Uh, I don't want to be directly critical of it, but uh, I am interested in the idea that maybe rather than hack the planet, we should instead kind of hack our behaviours. I mean, it's a good thing to be wary of, right? Is We don't necessarily understand the consequences of these new actions that we're starting, whereas we have a better understanding of the consequences of the actions we're undertaking now. So if we change those current behaviors, they're more likely to lead to positive results than trying these new things, which could have unforeseen consequences in the future. Is is that about right? Hmm. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah, and the other thing that I thought was interesting from what you've just explained you said in, in your one piece where you film the traffic of ice and people and how ice is melting into the sea and sort of going into its death, as you've called it. It's quite interesting because it also shows how interconnected climate change is because you're experiencing the ice going into the sea where you are currently up north. And I'm here in the south of Europe in Greece, and I've just met some climate scientists who are measuring the sea level rise here down at the beach near us. And they're saying that every couple of months they do it and every couple of months it's increasing. So the ice that is melting up where you are, it's coming down here and it contributes to the rise in sea levels. 
Yes, and uh, if I, at the risk of making myself sound like uh, one of the the one percent who's responsible for fifty percent of the world's aviation emissions, I have to tell you that just before I went to film um, up in the Arctic, I had been in Venice during on the night of these record floods when it reached one hundred eighty seven centimeters. I was, I think, the only person crazy enough to be standing right in front of the Basilica in St Mark's Square as the waters just went way, way beyond anything that was predicted. And it was really, it was up to my chest. I was holding cameras above my head. Maybe I'll play you a little bit of the sound from I recorded on that night because it, it chills me every time I hear it. This sound, uh, the alarm going off, it's well above actually what that alarm was designed to. The alarm maxes out 150 centimetres. And as as I was just holding these cameras and my feet were tangled in these uh, passerelle, which the tourists use to sort of cross the square when there's water down there and they don't want to ruin their shoes. So I thought, I'm not going to get out of here alive unless I swim for it. And this is standing in front of St. Mark's Basilica. And um, I was almost at the point of letting go of my cameras when I found a way out. And that sort of, <laughs> I didn't want to die, particularly want to die for my art, um, as I mentioned during uh, uh, the, the filming of Adrift as well. And this was totally unplanned. As I got home and I was sort of drying things out, I started to think about, okay, this is, well, of course, there is subsidence also um, to blame in Venice, but the sea level is irreversibly going up there and they've only built mosaic the the tidal barriers to cope with a, a certain amount of sea level rise which wasn't predicted to be very much at all and now their predictions are much greater so, so these things become very visceral to me as i film sea level rise also feeds into one of the other anthropocenes i made tideline which is this shot of an icelandic black sand beach where the waves which are just seen as white outlines, are getting higher and higher and higher as the drone flies along them. And actually, maybe you don't even read it as waves, people looking at it for the first time, because the sand is black, you just see them as kind of mountains or something like this. So it really has this geological dimension to it as well. And that is an example of where cinema can do really interesting things, because I was able to reverse the shot. So the waves are actually appearing there from the sand and then sweeping backwards and it's also shot in slow motion as well sea level rise it was the as i mentioned the original problem uh, in tuvalu how do i represent sea level rise when we can't actually really be sure that we're seeing its effects yet and that sort of reached uh, a conclusion in in tideline by employing slow motion whereas i'd employed the opposite of that fast motion in breakdown to be able to witness how these icebergs were moving. When you sped them up 20 times, they suddenly became like these crazy frenetic vehicles moving through the lagoon and crashing into themselves. And then humans, of course, at 20 times, you've got all these tourists coming in, taking their selfie and then rushing out again to get back on the bus. So I think this is where I'm really happy that I'm a video artist, that I'm not working in in standard documentary anymore because by using slow motion, fast motion, reversal and so forth, I'm able to sort of dig into these imperceptible parts of climate change that troubled me so much as as a documentarian. 
And maybe I'll, maybe I'll just play you a little bit of the, the soundtrack from Tideline. This is made by a friend of mine, Martin Frank, who uses an instrument he built himself. It's modelled on something called a yebaha, which is developed by a Turkish instrument maker. And it's built out of recycled table legs. He cut a leg off the table. Now there's only three legs, but it, he fixed it. Uh, planks, sides, bits of old instruments and piano strings and things like this. And you can just hear these amazing kind of overtones and very kind of visceral sounds coming out of this instrument, which I like a lot. But then on top of that, there's another track of his, which is just breath sounds. And that for me really brings in this idea of anthropogenic influences. You said earlier that um, you think and you want your work to speak for itself. So I was going to ask you if you have a particular message. Uh, so it's quite an important thing that that I'm not putting out, the, out a message. You know, if people want to read something into the work, that's great. And I, I have been sort of today sort of giving you some of my uh, interpretations of these works, but really it's it's supposed to be just sitting there for people to give them a space in which to think about these ideas. And can I just give you a, my, my favourite quote about um, sort of what art can do in these sort of circumstances? And I know the Centre for Energy Ethics is really open to bringing art into it. So I think it's a good point to clear up. This is Andy Griffiths, and he says, You can see agitprop coming a mile away, barging along the street towards you, giving you time to turn the other way or shake it warmly by the hand. Art, however, can steal up more quietly, coming alongside, maybe with the scent of jasmine or rum, speaking intrigue. And I love that. I, I think this is, uh, in a nutshell, <laughs> uh, uh, really how I want to work, um, to speak uh, intrigue and to open open curiosity and uh, and see what comes in. To, to use probably an overused phrase and a phrase that I don't like, in a post-truth, post-facts world that we uh, hopefully are coming out of sometime soon, but in, in, in that kind of world, then I, I think art has a really important place for engaging people who might otherwise shrink away from being engaged. Yes, I think that uh, that's true. In order to round off this really interesting talk that we've had with you today, it would be interesting for me as the anthropologist here to bring back the human and the connection between humans and between the environment and climate. So I'm wondering, in all those places that you've traveled to in your life and throughout your career in the north and in the south, what is something that connects people across these different locations? Well, the places I go uh, uh, tend to be on the, the front line of climate change, where it's almost becoming visible, almost becoming perceptible. So any connections I would find between people in these places, uh, I guess, is, is tied to that. But the funny thing is, of course, I left Australia to do it. And Australia was very ambivalent about climate, still is politically, uh, until the bushfires hit. And just after I left and these bushfires swept through, then suddenly it became tangible. Suddenly you couldn't take a breath without your lungs filling with, filling with soot 
and you had to go off and buy a face mask, which then came in handy for another uh, crisis that arguably is biologically inspired. But uh, I think then it put Australians in this feeling that, hey, we're also on the front line of climate change. I mean, scientists have been telling them that for a long time, but then it became tangible. People in the areas that I'm in, like here now, well, Norway, for example, they're running out of water at the moment because the ground froze because no snow snow fell. Snow moved somewhere else. This is a very complex process. You know, that's why it's called climate change, not global warming, because it's going to have differential effects in differential places. So, again, it's hard to generalize between all of these places. But as people start to put the pieces of the puzzle together, each person has their own particular things they've noticed. So the person in Tuvalu who noticed that that island that they used to swim to as a boy that, that tree, the one palm tree that was there, it's been washed off in that tidal surge that happened the other day. And uh, the people in the Arctic who suddenly noticed that there's a lot more polar bears coming in near the settlements and they're reaching their, their hunting quota much earlier because the bears can't go out very far on the sea ice. So people are putting uh, bits of the puzzle together. And I don't know that there's anything that links all of those experiences except to say that th there are changes that are really affecting people in big ways that I am trying to bring together with with these multiple screen ideas. I mean, that will be my thesis if I ever get around to delivering it. We'll be using this triptych form that was developed by early Renaissance painters to bring uh, a religion that was based elsewhere and elsewhere into relevance for people in the here and now. And that's why I'm using multiple screens. And that's what I'm trying to do ultimately is to find these connections, but to bring them in ambiguously across the multiple screens or the multiple panels to allow people to make their own connections between them. Because those connections, you really have to feel those connections. And I think that's where art can speak to people where scientific information, and there is a lot of it, that tends to wash over people these days, sadly. If you're alone in an art gallery in this darkened space, and you're feeling this very visceral connection to a piece of ice or to an island that's, that's going underwater, then I think you start to build something that works on you despite what your politics might have been. That's fantastic. I think those are wonderful, thought-provoking and inspiring words to conclude this podcast. What do you think, James? Yeah, I just want to thank you, Adam, for joining us today uh, and for making all these recordings available to us. Is there anywhere that you would like the listeners to go and take a look at? Look, as well as the, the Anthropocenes, I did make one other work that maybe people would be interested in. It's, it's climate scientists talking about their own personal, emotional, ethical relationship to the work that they're doing. This is a very problematic thing normally for climate scientists to even begin to discuss because then they're dismissed as having, you know, skin in the game, personal involvement, uh, they're, they're unbalanced. Um, how can we trust their evidence? So the only way I could think of getting through this was to actually turn one of their own instruments on them. So I borrowed a thermographic imager from a group of climate scientists working in Australia and then imaged them as heat and because they are really feeling the heat of the moment, if you like, that's what the work's called. And uh, I then asked them to tell me about their personal relationship to this work that they're doing, this 
quite apocalyptic work in some regards because a lot of them were biological scientists and they're the ones who are really taking heart in the idea of homeostasis that, hey, we're top of the food chain. When humans disappear, eventually the system will right itself. So that's the only thing that keeps them going. (laughs) Well, that's what some of them said to me. So this was uh, a very interesting way for me to uh, be able to anonymize these scientists, to be able to, to speak from the heart, if you like. And also it gave me a chance to run around with this thermographic imager. I hired some models, so I, I don't know if, uh, if I was allowed to uh, be pointing the, the, this very expensive piece of equipment at uh, nude models running around in the Australian bush, but actually it worked quite well because their bodies were hotter than the, the landscape around them. And so they started warming up by radiant energy, their landscape. So some of these images are in this work as well, and it's, it's designed as a triptych, but it's, it's never actually been shown, but I have applied to COP26 they were asking for submissions for the planetarium where they've got this big wide screen. So I'm really hoping that this could be the opportunity to see that. But just in case it doesn't, then um, th- there'll be a link for that, I guess, that, uh, in the podcast description as well. But have a look at that if you're interested. No, absolutely. And we uh, hope to see you at COP26, uh, but we'll reveal more about that in due course. I guess all that remains is for us to, to thank you again, Adam. Thank you very much for your time and for, for being here today. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to me waffle on. It's been a great experience for me. I hope the listeners enjoy it. Thank you so much, Adam. It's been fantastic. And I wanted to thank the the Centre for running an art competition. I mean, it's pretty dire times for artists at the moment. So to have, A, a chance to show the work, but B, also a little bit of income from the prize money is really, really helpful. So I'm very grateful for that. So I hope everyone enjoyed our interview with Adam there. He was a fantastic guest. Uh, it was a real pleasure to to have him on and to have what was, I mean, quite a unique but informed opinion on his work in art, but also climate change and the problems facing people all around the world. I guess the only thing left for us then is to thank my co-host, Anna. Thanks very much for, for joining us again this episode. Uh, Do you have anything going on in your world at the moment? Yeah, I'm actually working on a paper to present at the annual meeting of the ASA, which is the Association of Social Anthropologists of the UK. And in this paper, I look at how people in leadership positions in the Norwegian energy industry navigated the changes of the energy transition by actively becoming part of the change themselves. If you're interested and are super keen, The Centre for Energy Ethics has organised an entire panel of anthropologists looking at energy titled Who Speaks for Energy? And that's April 1st and April 2nd, I believe, Anna? Yes, it is. And will be hosted online. We'll uh, put the link to the registration page on the website. If people do want to get in touch with us here at the All About Energy podcast, just send a message to uh, the Centre for Energy Ethics on twitter or on linkedin or or you can email us at energyethics at sanandrews.ac.uk all that really remains is to thank you for joining us for making it this far and we hope you hear from us soon